Hi, my name is Jim Lewis. And my name is Chris Painter. Welcome to season two of Inside Cyber Diplomacy, a casual and we hope revealing conversation with Jim and I and our guest of the week that hopes to go behind the scenes and really tell the story of what's going on. Today, we're talking to Leonard Roland, the head of international cybersecurity policy at the French Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Leonard served at the French embassies in Moscow and Berlin. He was a participant in the fourth GGE, the 2014-2015 GGE, that was the one that led to agreement on norms, CBMs, and capacity building. He's an old friend. We're glad to have him on the show. Leonard, over to you. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. Thanks, Chris, for having me. Sure. Why don't we start? We'll do an opening question. Tell us what you think the state of play is when it comes to cyber diplomacy. Where are we? What's going on? Where's the action? <laughs> yeah, very, very good question. I think from a French perspective, the, the best way to, to uh, speak about this is to think along concentric circles. And we've been constantly over the last year evolving our cyber diplomacy along this circle. So the first circle, of course, is the national one. And we had to gear up in order to be able to address these challenges, not only from a technical and, and, and different side of things, but also from a diplomatic side of things. But it meant that we had to construct our uh, interagency organization. So we really had to build up doctrines to have the proper circles of coordination at both technical, operational, and strategic level. So that's something we've been doing over the last years. And of course, then comes the, the second circle, which is the European one. And I think here is the, is the best circle to address such issues as, as resilience, as of course, digital sovereignty or whatever you, you call it. And here, I think the, 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 the progress has been really striking over the last three or four years with a lot of, of, of new text and lots of new cooperation mechanisms being uh, implemented. Then comes the circle of the like-minded coordination. I think it's very key here to exchange about threats, devise about how to best counter the threat, and also to test the ground for new governance ideas. And then the last circle, of course, maybe the most important one, which is the global one, uh, maybe the most difficult one as well, uh, given the polarization of the, of the issue uh, these days. And that's where we are uh, concentrating our efforts with the, with the program of action. Can I just follow up on that? Because I'm surprised to hear you say the global one is the most important one. I was going to ask you if the UN has reached the limits of its effectiveness, at least for now. So why do you say global? Did he say most important or most difficult? I wasn't sure there, but... <laughs> I said both. I said both. I said, I said both. Yeah, of course, it's it's always uh, a great and very useful to have these uh, like-minded coordinations, but if you really want to have an impact on global cybersecurity, we need to have everyone on board, and that's what it's the most... A difficult path. So how do we advance this? How we get out of the, I mean, maybe not the dead end, but the difficulties where we uh, where we were uh, over the last uh, month and years. And that's precisely why we came up with this idea of a, of a program of action. It was to turn all these discussions that were focused on expanding uh, the norms, expanding the normative framework, uh, to, to move from there towards something maybe more neutral, more consensual, which was the implementation the existing framework. And that's how we came up with this program of action idea, where we thought maybe there's still room here to, to do something that we haven't been able to, to do before. I, I want to dig down a little bit on the program of action before that, just to give more context. 
obviously, until the program of action happens, assuming it happens, we have the OEWG now that's been meeting. And I think notably, in the last session, they were able to issue an interim report after lots of <laughs> hemming, hemming and hawing, I guess I would say. I don't know what the French term for that is. But but the dynamic, as you said, the kind of geopolitical dynamic resulted in what at least appeared from those there, uh, for some of those there, that you know, Russia and a small group of states was kind of holding consensus hostage. What's your sense of that? And it, it has, do you think that all the low-hanging fruit sort of been taken and, and that uh, they got a consensus report really at the last minute, the last time after a lot of pushing and shoving. It, what's it going to be like this next year? And then I'll get, uh, then I want to do some follow-up on the program of action because I know that's the longer-term alternative. You know, I'm a quite optimistic person and uh, <laughs> therefore I was not entirely surprised that we managed to come up with a, with a consensus report last July. So for the next two years, let's see if we go along with this approach, with the yearly, uh, it's up to the chair, of course, with the yearly annual progress report or if, or if we use this opportunity to to take a deep dive into some of the issues that gathered a lot of, of very constructive remarks over the last year. For instance, the, the, the section on threats, there were multiple interventions by really a, a huge variety of, of states represented here on, on the, the next challenges when it comes to addressing cyber threats, whether ransomware or AI-powered cyber warfare. So I think there is still room for having really intense and, and interesting discussion uh, on this issue. Uh, then, of course, there is the whole norms implementation section. We had a lot on, on, on due diligence already, but it's really something from the French point of view that we want to go deep uh, into, you know, to know how to operationalize this, this principle, how to make it more concrete and more useful for our practitioners in, in cybersecurity agency. It's also something that we, uh, that, that we could uh, look at. And of course, we still have two years within the Open Working Group to discuss the future of what we are trying to do at the UN. That's the, the part, the segment on the regular institutional dialogue. And here we'll use, of course, every opportunity to work on the substance on the POA and try to convince as much as possible a majority of states that this is the proper way to go. You seem to imply that the OEWG, originally talking to some senior UN officials, they thought that we wouldn't see any action until the last year. And you seem to imply that maybe we'll see interim goals, interim measures adopted. That we see what? I'm sorry, I didn't get interim, it. Interim, you know, will there be, will there be some agreement on steps or some agreement on threats or some agreement on confidence building measures. So it's, it's not that we'll wait for some final package with a big bow. It's that we'll get these interim steps. Yeah, I think it's the, it's the approach that was chosen by the chair to have a yearly uh, report progress to see where we are. So it's up to him to see if he wants to have a final package at the end of these uh, two coming years of, or if he wants still an interim uh, report where he will be also able to make some progress on, on some issues. Yeah, and there's been some progress like this uh, point of contact directory for CBMs, for instance. So it's, I mean, it's uh, it's fair to say it's incremental progress, but there's been some progress in some tangible way so not everything is backloaded at the end but that's why i think that's getting more difficult and and that kind of leads me into the program of action which was a french or at least a partly french uh initiative to to raise this and it's something that's supposed to follow the oewg not compete with it although the narrative from russia and others is this you know to try to get people to not vote for it is saying it's competing with it but 
interestingly, when you guys proposed this, the original text was pretty, I think, solid in the sense that it had a fair amount of content and substance in it. And also, very importantly, because of the, the problems we've had in the OEWG, anticipated or, or had a better avenue for stakeholder involvement than the current OEWG, where, where, as you know, many stakeholders get blocked largely by Russia. But you had one that was like the ad hoc committee, which is a much better standard. Not one stake could block everyone. So it's kind of the bronze standard. There is no gold standard in the UN right now, at least the bronze standard. So, but that was all taken out as a tactical it's, move. It's actually more, more like, it's actually more like tin. But, but, go ahead. But, but, yeah, that was all stripped out of that original resolution for the POA and, and, the, and an effort tactically to get more states to sign on, which you did. But now the rubber's hitting the road. So I guess the question is, I think a lot of people will say, well, the POA looks like it could be good and practical, as you said, but if it doesn't allow other stakeholders to actually participate, if it kind of replicates the OEWG, there's also a lot of people that say, well, what's the point of this? Uh, so so uh, you know, I know this is all in process right now because the first committee is going on. So what can you tell us about that? <laughs> It's a, it's, a, it's a very valid point. You know that the, the, the DNA of the of the PUA is its inclusivity. It's yeah. inclusivity not only towards all of the states, and that's really what we are doing right now during the first committee. There have been hours of, of negotiations, of consultations to take everyone's opinion and, and uh, position on board. And I really commend our team in New York for, for doing so. But it's also inclusivity towards uh, non-state stakeholders. And I think that's, that, that's key because non-state stakeholders not only have a unique expertise, if you look at the private sector, for instance, unique know-how, but they also have a responsibility. They also have particular responsibilities when it comes to, to uh, advancing uh, cyber stability. So we really want to, to, to have them on board. And you mentioned... Um, the precedent of the ad hoc committee, uh, the procedures uh, enforced there that allow the participation of the private sector and other stakeholders. This is really what we are aiming for in terms of preventing any states to block or to veto the participation of, of specific stakeholders. So that's from the start. It has been our uh, uh, will really to to have all these stakeholders uh, stakeholders on board on board, and we really want to pursue this track. But it's a process measure. What do you want in terms of outcomes from the POA? Other POAs have produced something at the end of their their work. What what do you hope for outcomes here from the POA? And and I would marry that question if you could, Roland, with the, with the question of what do you think the prospects are now? You're hot in the middle of trying to get this through. So what what does the lay of the land look like right now? Maybe let's start with Chris's uh, question on, on the immediate next steps. What we are trying right now to achieve with the resolution in the first committee is to have a proper deadline in order to ensure a, a seamless transition from the open-ended working group towards the POA by 2026. So we really want this deadline to be there in the text to be able then to focus our work within the open-ended working group over the next two years on the substance uh, of the POA and how uh, we, we implement it. Now, to answer your question, Jim, I think the best way to look at the PUA is as a flexible platform. If you want to use a, a computer metaphor, you could say uh, the operating system of, of cyber stability, where you could uh, you know, install some applications or plugin, and from time to time to be able to cope with the security environment, you will need to update 
the system. It's precisely what we want to do with the POA. So it could be a flexible kind of umbrella, you know, encompassing already existing very concrete initiatives, such as the directory for points of contact, uh, such as the repository of, of, of threats, for instance. There could be some voluntary reporting on, on norms implementation and some kind of matchmaking uh, body for capacity building. You know, all these very uh, useful tools that we have to promote cyber stability uh, could fit under this uh, uh, POA umbrella. And then there would be the reviewing part in a, a timeline to, to, to decide on. But for instance, every five or six years, there could be a review conference where states gather to see if the normative framework is still up to date or if there's a need to revise it. Hmm. That's ambitious. Yeah. The POA is your view of what the future institutional dialogue is going to be in the UN. And, you know, the, the one of the suppositions people have is that the alternative point of view that Russia will launch its own initiative to either renew the OEWG for another five-year Star Trek-like mission or that they'll drop a, a global treaty, which they've talked about, as you know, we all know, for literally 15 years now. And they made some noises about that. No, the last, 19, 1998. So, 20, yeah, more than 20 years. So um, Impressive. It's yeah. an anniversary. It's a silver anniversary. Um, <laughs> so what what do you think of that dynamic? I mean, is that the concern? Is that do you think that that's not going to really succeed, at least in the short term? Obviously, you and, and like minded many others think the POA is the way to go in the future. But there are these competing concerns because of geopolitics, not just because of geopolitics. It's, they've always had a different view of this. Yeah, of course, it's something that, that we, we have in mind and that we consider this strong push led by, by Russia to, to, to have these discussions around, uh, around the treaty. And it's up to us to convince that, uh, like I was referring to, the POA platform could also be a place where from time to time we look at the framework and see if there's a need to revise it. And in this context, there will be a work to be done on analyzing possible gaps uh, in existing international law and maybe devise about the future uh, possibility of legally binding obligations. But what we are uh, saying now is that this work is too premature. But that would be an opportunity within the POA to also have this conversation. So that's why we need to, to keep on engaging uh, uh, countries that could have an interest in this idea of a treaty, which we think is not the right one at this moment, to tell them, look, involve yourself, involve your country in the POA, and there will be space for this kind of discussion. When you look at the landscape of the POA, frankly, the Chinese are probably more influential globally, although perhaps not in the UN. So tell us where these other countries come out. Where do you where do you see the not the like-minded? And not everyone is like-minded. Like-minded maybe, what is that, 30, 40 countries? Where the rest and start with China, if you don't mind. Yeah, China is a, is a country that, of course, we've been engaging since the start of the PUA issue. And I can even disclose that there have been some recent consultation, bilateral consultation related to this issue. So we really keep engaging them. And this will continue within our uh, bilateral cyber dialogue with them to try to, to convince them that they have an interest uh, uh, to join uh, to join the POA. Of course, right now there is lots of, of wariness, and there is also this 
Russian proposal for a treaty that polarizes kind of the whole uh, discussion. So it's difficult to get uh, commitments from, from China, but it's something that we've been trying hard to, uh, to do. Um, then if you look at Russia, I mean, it's absurd that they are trying to repoliticize a process that we wanted to depoliticize. You know, the PUA was meant to be this consensual implementation platform. And I heard recently that the PUA should, would in fact be some kind of a tribunal to judge uh, to judge specific country. It's absurd. It's precisely the opposite. It's that working together uh, as an institutional community to advance the global stability framework. So it's it's the discussion is really is really difficult right now with uh, with Russia on this issue. And then there's the rest of of countries who are really genuinely interested in the idea that we are submitting. They see a real interest in this action oriented dimension of the POA, this link with voluntary reporting on norms implementation, this link with capacity building. And this country, uh, we keep on engaging them. And I think that the result of last year POA resolution, which was 157 votes in favor at the first committee, showed that there was a genuine interest by a vast majority of states, not only the small like-minded community to make progress on this issue. Who would you yeah, think is the uh, leading countries in that? I mean, I know Egypt's been involved. Who, who else? We've been intensely consulting over the, to give you an example, over the last uh, few days with uh, Egypt, of course, uh, South Africa, Brazil. These are really key players in the field of which we want to accommodate the views to precisely keep on with this idea of inclusivity, not only as a buzzword, but really as a reality of what we are doing on a daily basis. I mean, the key thing, obviously, as you know, is the middle ground countries who are looking for practical help. And that's where I think this appeals. One of the worries is that if Russia does offer an alternate resolution, what will happen is both of them get passed. I mean, I remember this happened with the OEWG a few years ago and the GGE. And I remember Michelle from the U.S. saying, well, the Russian resolution didn't get nearly as many votes as the U.S. and like-minded one. And my answer was, well, it still passed. <laughs> it doesn't really make a difference. So you you started this, and the same with the cybercrime treaty. But but I do sense, and you've heard this many times, that a lot of states are just weary of process. They don't want to have multiple processes. So, I mean, I, I'm sure that, that gives you some opportunities to argue this. But I, I don't think the POA is meant to do this, but there is, um, especially just being in Kyoto at the Internet Governance Forum, there's a lot of concern I've heard raised that some of these UN initiatives look like they may be a way for the UN to assert a more primary role in in topics that maybe they're not suited to be the primary role. Maybe they're certainly suited to be a player, maybe even a major player. But there's concern that, you know, the UN's trying to like move into the space and be the central part, whether that makes sense or not. Do you share that or do you see that? You know, what's your, what's your view? Well, I think when you look back at the genesis of the multi-stakeholder model for internet governance, the UN always had a, a role to play among other actors from, from, from non-intergovernmental communities. But the UN always has been there. And I think it's pretty natural that it keeps on suggesting initiatives because multi-stakeholder is also including intergovernmental. It's not only intergovernmental, but intergovernmental is part of the multi-stakeholder architecture of digital and internet governance. No, I, I agree. 
the UN does play a very important role. I, I, I think there's just some concern that they're trying to central some people, not, you know, look, the UN's a very big place and there's lots of different moving parts, but there's some sense that they're trying to reassert maybe primacy in, in an area where, you know, maybe it's not built for, the UN's not built for multi-stakeholder activity. So it's just, it's just a concern I heard raised several times during the week in Kyoto. Well, and some some worry that the Secretary General sees some sort of digital something as as his legacy. So he's coming up. Those legacy moments are always bad for leaders, but we're coming up on it. But Leonard, you have another hat, don't you? You do. You also handle the oversight of the discussions in the European Union on cybersecurity. You're involved in them. Um, tell us about what's going on in the EU, which is probably a little more coherent than the UN. That's not necessarily a compliment. Well, thank you for, for raising the EU topic. Do you remember I was referring to the EU as the, the second concentric circle yeah. where the priority of, of the French cyber diplomacy uh, lies. Um, and actually, I was really impressed uh, by the work done because I came back to cyber after five years break, came back to cyber last December, and I was really impressed by the work done at the EU over the last three, four years to really raise the cyber landscape at the right level, which is the level of the, the 20, 27 member states, and all the work that has been done to avoid precisely fragmentation among these 27 states. There's been a lot on resilience, for instance. And resilience means regulation. So it's lots of texts that have been adopted, uh, for instance, the, the NIS-1 directive in 2016 and the NIS-2 directive last year. And I think uh, the fact that we had a NIS-2 is precisely a good illustration that resilience and regulation actually work. Because we thought at the beginning, maybe with NIS-1, we are maybe too ambitious in the constraints that we pose to critical operators in order for them to, to improve their cybersecurity. And after three, four years, we said, mm, no, actually, we were not ambitious enough. So let's do a second directive because uh, it has been very, uh, very, very, very useful. And I think that's also the, the, the mark, the DNA of the, of the EU way to look at these things, where resilience was since the beginning uh, placed as a core objective of, of cybersecurity and cyber diplomacy. Uh, the former head of our uh, cybersecurity agency uh, used to say, in cyber, the best defense is defense. And of course, it was maybe... I remember not, him saying that, yes. <laughs> it was not very, it's not very glamorous, but I think at the end, it was, prove, it was proven right. So that's, that's for one thing, the, the, the EU resilience work, but it's also a lot of things in terms of crisis management, so how to cooperate among the 27 cybersecurity agency and beyond how to cooperate at diplomatic level to counter threats. Uh, and here uh, we, we had uh, last year uh, an update of our cyber diplomacy toolbox, which gives us tools to cooperate, but also uh, to deter uh, some, some threat actors. So we've been, and we are continuing to sharpen the tools in order not only to improve our resilience, but also uh, to be able to impose costs. Yeah, on that in particular, you know, I have to say I was a skeptic. I remember telling Heli back when this all came, when the diplomatic toolbox came about that there's no way, great you have it, but there's no way you're actually going to use it because you have to have a consensus among the EU member states. And, and you have used it many times, and that's been great. I guess the question is, are you worried that some of the political fragmentation that's happening in Europe now with some some countries becoming, let me say, 
somewhat illiberal, is that putting some strain on the cyber use of cyber tools as well? Or haven't you not seen that crossover yet? Yeah, you're right. There may be some some challenges, some some frictions, but I would say we are used to deal with them within the EU. And if you look, for instance, at the uh, ability of the EU to constantly support Ukraine over the last uh, mm. 600 days, you can see that there are always ways to be found on the diplomatic level to uh, overcome these potential frictions. And it's the same for the activation of the toolbox. So it needs a lot of, of engagement with these countries. It needs also some circles of, of trust to be able to share uh, information, to uh, raise the ability of the EU and of the EU member states to, to attribute, which is a, a I think a core attribute of, of digital sovereignty, being able to defend yourself and be able to know by yourself who is attacking you. So there's constant work ongoing on this issue to be able also to, to raise uh, the EU capabilities in this matter. And we should note that the polls recently re-elected Tusk, which is a move away from the kind of far-right populace. And if we were mean to Leonardo, if we were going to be mean to you, we would do what other people usually do to ask, which ask is Trump coming back. We would ask you what's up with Le Pong, but we'll we'll skip that. You mentioned attribution. What's it like now in the EU with the Brits out? Because the Brits were frankly the most capable cyber power of the European nations. And I assume some degree of relationship continues, but what are negotiations like now that Britain isn't there? I think our level of engagement with the Brits in the, is in a pretty good shape, both at bilateral level, but also in formats that are like-minded EU or European countries plus the, plus the Brits. I think the level of cooperation with, with them has not decreased. On the, for instance, on a bilateral basis, we are working with them on an initiative to go deeper. You know, there was the, the, the Paris call in, in 2018, and one of the principles was uh, that companies should not sell products that can be used for offensive destabilizing uh, operations. So it's kind of a proliferation discussion that we, we wanted to have. And now with our British colleague, we are uh, implementing an initiative in order to address the misuse and proliferation of offensive cyber commercial tools. So it's one of the many examples of where our uh, relationship with the British colleagues is and how we are moving it forward. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, that, that's another place, obviously, you collaborate in, in venues like the G7 and and sort of smaller venues, OSCE, other things like that. The G7 has always been used as a crucible to do things, and then you take it to a wider audience. Uh, is there room for the G7 to do more on the, the area of norms and accountability? I mean, accountability is a hard thing for the UN to deal with because of the political issues. Is, is the G7 the right place, or is there another body, smaller body, maybe like-minded, maybe not like-minded body that can deal with that issue? Because the accountability part has been the missing piece. It's great to have norms, but if there's no accountability, they're kind of empty. Yeah, the, actually, a very good question. The G7 has already a record when it comes to cyber norms. There was this uh, Isishima working group a few years ago, and then during our presidency, we came up with the Cyber Norms Initiative, was right. a, a for, for states to, uh, to implement these norms. So I think it's a valid format, but when it comes to accountability, it's also good to go a little bit beyond 
you know, this uh, like-minded group, which is the G7, to involve more countries, for instance, from the middle ground or the Indo-Pacific uh, region. Well, I think G7 has proven uh, very useful, but it's also good to have other formats to discuss norms and their implementation plus the accountability. Maybe a related but more difficult question is that there are some in the United States who think that the EU uses cybersecurity as a way to advance a protectionist agenda. And certainly some of the French initiatives in cloud are seen here as protectionist. What would you say? I've heard you this have to the party line at this point. That's <laughs> your cue. <laughs> Yeah, and I th thank you for, for, for raising this issue. I know there's been a lot of maybe misperception, misunderstanding, and that's why we need to, to constantly try to dispel those and explain also our position. So first, let me tell, me, let me tell you that there is absolutely no doubt uh, that cloud solutions provided by the U.S. companies offers a really high level of, of, of cybersecurity. And that's why as France is progressively transitioning to cloud, for both businesses and administration, we need these US companies on the European market. So I'll be very clear about this. However, because of course that's however, when it comes to particularly sensitive data, both businesses and administration need to have a high degree of trust in the provider that they choose. And for us, this notion of trust implies that the provider will not be subject to any extraterritorial legislation. So that's how we came up in our um, national scheme with a, a criteria precisely to ensure this, uh, this immunity. And that's why we, what we are trying also to, to, to do with, uh, uh, with, uh, with EUCS, with the certification scheme at a European uh, level. Having said that, two very important additions, I would say. First, the way we are seeing certification obligations is very uh, proportionate and also compliant with our international commitments. Uh, as a matter of fact, for instance, at national level last summer, we clarified the notion of particularly sensitive data. And actually it turned out to represent only a very small fraction of uh, the total market for cloud services. And this is something that is way too often overlooked I think in the discussion is that we are only talking about a small portion of the uh, uh, of the market for cloud services. Second remark, I think very uh, important one is the fact that our approach is uh, country agnostic. So it's not aimed at any country in particular, uh, contrary to what uh, uh, we can hear. Uh, oh, sometime. come on. You mean you're not going after those Irish cloud providers? <laughs> <laughs> no, but actually, the, the whole system gives the possibility for good partnerships between uh, European companies and uh, U.S. hyperscalers, for instance. So it doesn't exclude them from the, from the market, but it gives a framework for cooperation between these companies and, and, and uh, European companies. And actually, I was talking to one of the uh, representatives in, in Paris of one of these big U.S. hyperscalers, and they were pretty much happy with the framework. And they said there was good business to be done. So I think there's uh, gave me hope about the acceptability of what we are trying to do. Hmm. Yeah, I think so there's a recognition now that... Uh... Despite some discomfort that we'll need to work out that Europe is the place that is driving digital regulation. Although you must be. We don't have a functioning Congress, but. But you must, I imagine that you 
reacting with uh, maybe positive surprise at the uh, U.S. national cyber strategy that talked about shifting the burden to industry for some of this. That, that, that's, a, that's a really, that was a watershed change for the U.S. to actually state that out loud in a document. So that it seems like it's more in line with the way that the French and other Europeans have thought about this. So I, I'm, I'm curious how you how you you reacted to that when you saw that. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Chris. We were uh, really uh, positively considering this new document and this new approach by the U.S. authorities, which really look like what we are trying to do also at EU level with the cybersecurity by design regulation that we are negotiating right now, which is the Cyber Resilience Act, which is, by the way, one of the follow-up consequences also of the Paris call in 2018, which was for the first time mentioning as a principle of the call, the obligation for companies to put on the market products and software that would be uh, secure by design. Then it went through the OECD, which produced some recommendations about this. And then the commission seized the issue and, and initiated a, a text. So it's a good example of how a political commitment can turn into, uh, into regulation, more constraining uh, regulation. And it's a very good topic for cooperation between EU, the EU, and the US. If you look at the, at the declaration of the last EU-US uh, summit of last week, there's one paragraph on cybersecurity that precisely says that we should work towards mutual recognition of these new uh, labeling mechanisms for security of products, so which is a very good thing that we are able to align ourselves. Hmm. You know, we talked briefly about Ukraine, but you, I'm, I'm curious to how you've obviously Ukraine, lots, lots to take from that. But in terms of cyber and cyber policy in France, how has it affected it? Has it made it, have people understood it more because of cyber being used in the Ukraine? Have people like they, some in the US uh, looked at it and said, well, cyber didn't play that big a role. So cyber is not that important, which is wrong. How has that been a, either a platform or a story or an effect in terms of the stuff that you're trying to do and, and getting more senior decision makers who don't do cyber every day to understand this as an issue? Yeah, thank you uh, for, for this uh, very interesting question on Ukraine. Actually, there are many ways to approach our lessons learned from what happened in Ukraine in the in the cyber domain. So I will touch upon one in particular, which is the, the role of the, of the private sector in helping a, a country uh, in need. I think there was a, a, a wake-up call also on the European side that maybe we were not uh, prepared enough when it comes to uh, the possibility of private sector also from uh, the European uh, Union to be able to play this kind of role, for instance, in, uh, in incident response. And that therefore, the, the Commission started to work on a, a mechanism, some kind of an emergency mechanism, based on a pool of trusted cybersecurity companies that could be used, that could be sent to EU member states in need uh, after a cyber attack to do, for instance, uh, incident response. And that's the proposal by the Commission that they call the EU Cyber Reserve. That's the uh, progress that we are really, really supporting from the from the French side because we think it's a it's a very useful tool in order to deal with cyber crisis, uh, taking into account scarce resources by governmental authorities. 
sometimes if you uh, if I would ask my cybersecurity company, they would say, hey, my priority, sorry, uh, guys from the MFA, but it's the national territory. So I think coming up with this idea of using the private sector to do precisely this is the is the is the, the right approach. And President Macron used this proposal by the Commission to, at the last European Political Community Summit, propose the extension of the beneficiaries of such a reserve to all members from the uh, European Political Community. So not only uh, for this mechanism to be able to ensure the resilience of EU member states, but also the wider Europe. So I'd say I just make a footnote that it's easy to overstate the importance of cyber in warfare because we haven't figured out how to use it to actually produce victory. Right? And ultimately, that is the point of the war. Uh, that may have been lost in recent years. But for you, you've been out of this now for, you were out for five years and then you were dragged back into it. How do things look different to you? What's what's changed in France? What's changed in the diplomatic role? Um, Just like the Godfather, every time he thinks he's out, they pull him back in. Or... <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, uh, and you don't do any tricks with oranges. That's our only request. But, uh, <laughs> what's it? You were out for a while. What is it? What's what's changed in France? What's changed in what you do? What's changed in the diplomatic scene? So I already talked about what changed at the EU level. So that's, I think, mm-hmm. a key part of, 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 my, of my answer. Now, when it comes to what we're doing at national level, I think the, the, the country and our ministry really did the homework to be able to face new uh, emerging challenges in, in cyberspace. But the minister decided, the reason why I came back is that the, the, the minister decided a year ago to create a cybersecurity, international cybersecurity division. And at the same time, she also decided to create a division, which is not in our directorate, but in directorate for press and communication, to fight against disinformation online and to fight against a coordinated a campaign of manipulation of information targeting, uh, targeting France. And now we are in the process of creating another, uh, yet another, a third one, a third division, aimed at dealing with more tech and trade uh, digital, digital issues. So I think with these three divisions, which are overseen by our ambassador for digital affairs, Henri Verdier, that you that you of course know, we are approaching, I think, a good model of of dealing with this uh, with this issue from the from the ministry's perspective. Hmm. It's interesting that foreign ministries weren't even paying attention to this issue much ten years ago, and now, as you say, I, I remember having conversations with the SG and the foreign ministry in France about them creating a position that was only like eight years ago. And now, as you say, there's all these new structures. So is cyber diplomacy, in your view, is it kind of here to stay now? Is it not going to be subject to the whim of it being just a passing fad, but something that's really ingrained both in France and really around the world? Do you see this growing even further? I think it's... uh... It's not written in stone, the organization that we have right now. It's something that we we also in a, in a trying mode, you know, to look at what the best organization is. For instance, if you look at the State Department, they decided to create a huge bureau encompassing all the digital issues. On our side, we decided to mainstream the competence in each directorate. So there's my mine on uh, security policy, the one on communication and press, and the one on global issues. So that all these three big directorates, they have 
in-house their own their own digital expertise. That was the model that was uh, chosen so far, but it may uh, it may need to to evolve also according to new technological developments for sure. Any particular concrete steps you'd want to see? And there's questions about how to accelerate progress in the POA. Questions here in Washington. So what we want to do with the POA is to create a group, manageable, so not a very big group, a transregional one that would focus over the next two years on the substance. So we would like to have representatives from all over the world, maybe in a group of 20%, to be able on a regular basis to meet uh, online and in person to uh, discuss what the POA precisely will be about. Because it's a question that we uh, often get. So what is concretely uh, the POA about? We, of course, have our ideas. Every state has its own idea. But now the issue is to test these ideas in a transregional group of friends. So that's, I think, the, the most concrete progress that we are intending to initiate regarding the POA over the coming weeks. Well, okay. I hope effort involves leveraging efforts that are out there rather than trying to reinvent the wheel, because there's a lot of good things out there. And I think the POA could be very helpful in bringing those into the tent. So uh, good luck with that. Yeah. Thank you.